I'm Evan Smith of the Texas Tribune, and this is Point of Order, a podcast about the ins and outs, the ups and downs, the people and politics and traditions of the 86th Texas Legislature. This week, the rollback pushback. Earlier this year on this podcast, State Senator Paul Bettencourt, Republican of Houston, the chair of the Senate Property Tax Committee, talked expansively about his ambitious plans for property tax reform. The approach he championed, mirrored by his counterpart in the House, State Representative Dustin Burroughs, chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, and heartily endorsed by Governor Greg Abbott, allowed no more than 2.5% growth of local property tax revenues year over year down from the current 8% without the approval of voters. As I speak these words, the Betancourt Bill SB2, which passed out of committee in February, has not yet hit the floor of the Senate, presumably because there aren't enough votes in favor of it. Otherwise, it would have been brought up by now, right? The Burroughs Bill HB2 is about to be considered on the floor of the House, having passed out of Ways and Means last week, but there may not be enough votes to pass it either. This is go time, with both advocates and opponents actively stockpiling their best arguments in anticipation of a fight over what is, honestly, other than the school finance overhaul, this session's priority legislation. Remember that we've had a few months at the Capitol largely free of drama. Those of us on the outside have been eager to pop the popcorn. One hell of a good show is finally about to begin, and no one knows with certainty what will ultimately happen. Not even my guest this week, one of the loudest voices against the form of reform under consideration. Austin Mayor Steve Adler believes SB2 and HB2 as written would handcuff him and other local electeds at a moment when they're struggling to pay the growing costs of providing basic services, including and notably in the area of public safety. The option provided by the bill to make a case for higher taxes directly to their constituents in an up or down vote is too onerous and costly, says Adler, who believes the opportunity to toss someone out of office for approving an out-of-bounds tax hike is all the accountability necessary. Adler is a Democrat who leads his city in a nonpartisan capacity, and he correctly notes that the pushback cuts across ideological and geographic divides. The issue... 100% unadulterated is local control. It's the cities and the counties, the blue ones and the red ones, the rural ones and the urban ones versus the state. Should the mayor and his ilk not prevail, they won't go down quietly, as he told me when we sat down on the afternoon of April 10th, day 93 of the 140. Point of Order is supported by Texas Realtors, strongly supporting transparency in the property tax rate-setting process, ensuring local elected officials are accountable to constituents. Learn more at hiddenpropertytax.com. And by the University of Texas at Arlington, ranked number one in Texas for veterans and number seven in the U.S., innovating the future of Texas now. Visit uta.edu and the Texas Education Grantmakers Advocacy Consortium. Texans know that money matters in public education. Well-funded, high-quality public schools shape our future, ensuring a well-trained, highly skilled workforce. More at tgac.org.
So the rumors are true. They want to swap out the property tax for the sales tax. Are you for or against it? I'm against that. You're against that. Why? Can't be against everything, Mr. Mayor. You know, I'm just, a, I'm just against things that don't seem to be tethered to constructive policy. I mean, to shift a tax that's being paid by one person to another person who has to pay that same tax, uh, you'd be looking for, for, for a policy reason, I think, to, to do that. Don't, don't you stipulate that property taxes are higher than people would like them to be? Yes. So if uh, increasing the sales tax by uh, 1%. You know, I haven't seen that proposal is so new that, that I've even heard rumors that the, the money that gets raised goes to the, to, the, to the state and not to the cities. So, so at this point- Are you point, spreading a rumor that would make this whole thing be bad? No. What they, what, they, what they want is to buy down the property taxes that we all pay by increasing the sales taxes that we pay. They say that there could be billions of dollars available to us by virtue of this modest increase in the sales tax that would then be available- uh, to buy down property taxes. Is that not a worthwhile goal? You know, I think it, the, the, the better goal, if I had access to another penny of sales tax in Central Texas, I think the people in this community and this part of the state would like to do something about congestion on I-35. And, and, and if we could have access to sales tax in order to be able to do something about congestion on I-35, which is one of the most congested roads in the country, that the state seems to be unable to find the resources to do anything about, then I would much more appreciate that the state would give us a local option to put to the voters to see whether the voters wanted to, to use that sales tax revenue to fix that. I, I'd rather the state give us the tool and then, and then get out of our way and see if it's something that this community wants to solve. You're, you're not opposed to increasing sales taxes. You're opposed to increasing sales taxes for the purpose of buying down property taxes. Yes. So then your objection to the increase in a sales tax would not be what... Chairman Hinojosa of the Democratic Party, of which you are a member, even though you serve in a nonpartisan capacity, said today, Republicans are lining the pockets of the wealthy few at the expense of hardworking Texans. That is what he said in response to this uh, plan to increase the sales tax so that property taxes could go down. He is buying into the argument that an increase in the sales tax for any purpose is regressive inherently and that people at the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder are the ones who suffer disproportionately. And that sounds like you'd be okay with that as long as it went to something else. No, no, what I'm saying, is, that is absolutely true, Yeah, what he's saying. So the question is then, when do I, when do I use a, a regressive tax? When do I increase a regressive tax? And I don't think you, regress, you increase a regressive tax in order to be able to buy down property tax relief. But you do uh, favor a regressive tax, it sounds like, for certain purposes. I think that one of the things that is hurting us most in our community is the mobility challenges that we have. And I think it's impacting everybody in this community, their opportunity, their access, how much money they make, how much money they can save, the quality of life is mobility in this city. So, so would I... Would I go to greater lengths in order to be able to have a solution to deal with my mobility challenges? The answer to that is yes. But not for this purpose. But I also, yeah, that's exactly right. Not for property taxes. That's correct. But you st stipulated a couple seconds ago, you said you believe that property taxes are too high and that people would like to pay a lower amount in property tax. There's no question that property taxes are too high. Everybody feels that all around the state. Right. What's been missing in this debate is why property taxes are too high. And, and no one looks at their tax bill to, to parse or decide where, where, what property taxes are going up. In Central Texas, in Austin, 72% of the property tax increase that we've all been feeling over the last five years has been the school tax. It's been the state uh, school finance system that's required our school district to maintain its rates, even in a rising property value market. 
thus ginning tons of extra money. You know, in recent years, while property values have been going up in Austin, the city and the county, we've been lowering our rate. We've still generated enough money, but we've been lowering our rate because property values are going up. What's happened at the state level is that there's a disincentive for for, for school districts to be able to lower their rates. So they've kept them high because of the finance system generating tons more money that the state then sweeps off the table. Your argument is if the state fixed the school finance system, that would take the pressure off of property taxpayers. I think that if it were not for the state school finance system, we wouldn't be talking about property rising property taxes in central Texas the way that so we are. So you like the system that's uh, uh, under consideration right now. The system reforms under consideration right now at the legislature where they're going to invest more heavily in uh, school uh, uh, finance. They're going to, through compression or some other means, buy down the growth in property tax rates and the property tax share of the funding of education and the state share of public education will rise as a result, you I think, like that. I think that's a move in the right direction. Right. But a, con- a component of that is the property tax reform that is currently under consideration, SB2 in the Senate, HB2 in the House, which lowers the threshold from 8%, which is a vestige of another time when inflation was much higher. That 8% threshold has never changed, even though inflation has gone down. That legislation under consideration right now at the Capitol takes that threshold down from 8% to 2.5% and brings the voters into the conversation. If you like the way that this whole package rebalances the seesaw, then you should be for SB2 and HB2. I, I think that the linkage between House Bill 2 and House Bill 3 is disingenuous. Explain. Because I think that House Bill 3 is actually resulting in real property tax um, uh, uh, relief. Through in, compression. In, through the compression. Right. Now, <clears throat> as a practical matter, it's not going to be as much as people anticipate or hope it would be, but at least it, it's very real compression. But on the other hand, if we do a 2.5% property tax cap in, in the in House Bill 2, that's not about property tax relief. In fact, if you say it's about property tax relief, you get yelled at by some of the, the, the authors and proponents of this. Well, it is not technically, it's not technically a cut, Mr. Mayor. The state doesn't levy property taxes, therefore the state can't cut property taxes. What they're proposing is not a cut or a reduction in property taxes. It's a slowing of the rate of growth. But it is such a small slowing of the rate in Austin, for example, if, if we were capped or triggered at this 2.5% and we did nothing to increase our budget, and we can talk about that if you want to, but if we didn't do anything to increase it, I'm $52 million upside down in my city budget in three years with no new programs, just dealing with cost drivers and the property tax relief associated with that for the typical taxpayer, $2.70 a month. House Bill 2 is not about property tax relief. It's not about property tax slowing. It's not, it's not materially about property tax at all. You think it's about giving you less uh, of an opportunity to solve the problems that your constituents have through city services that you provide or would be less able to provide under this scheme? That is exactly what it's about. When you say that uh, the amount of money that people are going to see in property tax relief is insignificant, we've been down this road before. We were promised in 2006 that a property tax swap for the business tax was going to somehow produce significant uh, consequence to the people of the state. A lot of people after the fact said, I didn't really feel any property tax cut or relief that I got. You think that this time it's going to be a version of the same thing? People are not going to be able to feel it. The juice won't be worth the squeeze. That's your argument. I think that House Bill 3 
may have some property tax compression that people will but not feel. House Bill 2 and not but, Senate Bill 2, not correct. as written. That's correct. Right. Senate Bill and House Bill 2 are not about providing property tax relief or really any material slowing down at all. But they do say that it's going to cause uh, the rate of growth of property taxes locally to be less than it otherwise would be. On its face, if you are restrained or constrained from going up all the way to that 8% amount, doesn't that by definition mean that the rate of growth is... Less. Yes, but you were asking about property tax that people would feel. And the 2.5% that we're talking about here gives the typical taxpayer in Austin $2.70 a month. Is it the same every place else? Is the amount the same every place else? I know that here in Austin, we think we're the center of the universe. We're awesome. We're focused on ourselves. But would other communities also, if your numbers are correct, see a comparably low level of effect household yes. by household. Yes, this costs local governments and, and local taxpayers millions of dollars in, in, in services and programs, and it is simply just pennies. But the impact is real. You know, the, the in, in our city budget is 70% public safety. That's, that's not different than, than most other cities in the, in the state. Most of what we spend our money on is public safety. Most of our budgets, 80% in, in Austin, is salaries. It's people. So most of our budgets are about public safety and, and, and people in, in, in public safety. You're raising the specter that if this legislation passes and you are as restrained as Senator Betancourt and Representative Burroughs would like you to be by way of SB2 and HB2, that you will have to make a hard choice on the public safety front. You're talking about layoffs of public safety employees. I'm either talking about layoffs of public safety employees or I'm talking about not adding the police officers that our community has asked us to do to increase community policing uh, in our city. We just did a, a police budget uh, and, and a police contract uh, for the next uh, four years. I don't think we'd have to lay off any of those policemen because as a practical matter, we wouldn't do that. But at the same time, we also said that we were going to increase our number of policemen every year. You so think just, you'll be unable to do that? There's, clearly, we would not be able to do. Have it you talked to the public about. safety unions or the employees on the public safety end of this conversation in Austin and asked them their point of view about this legislation? Yes, in fact, uh, uh, public safety uh, officers from 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 around the state testified uh, against the bill. Have your public safety officers testified? Officers yes, testified. Yes, and and they've spoken out against it. Uh, I think that they're hopeful that there's going to be some kind of deal that 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 happens where there's a a public safety carve out or exception against the two and a half percent cap, uh, and I and I surely hope they're right, uh, because that's what a a, a two and a half percent cap needs. It needs an exception for for public safety. Uh, it needs an exception for for roads. I mean. Um, uh, yes, I, I hope they're right that there's going to be a carve-out for so, public so let's, safety. So let's come back to the carve-outs and, and what would get you to a yes on some legislation like this. After we go a little bit deeper down into the math, municipal economics, you have told me previously in sort of thumbnail, here is how the budget of the city of Austin goes. Um, you have expenses that you alluded to of a certain amount and the revenue that comes in the door to cover those expenses is born 50% by property tax? Is that right? Just under 50%. Say 50% is yeah. property tax. The other 50% has basically two components, roughly a quarter of the total each. A quarter is sales tax revenue. And then the other half, the other quarter, is receipts from Austin Energy and from uh, development fees and the like. Understand that this cap this two and a half or five or six or whatever it would be is not a cap against total revenue. It's only a cap against property tax revenue. 
The other half of my revenue, my sales tax revenue, is going to be forecast to increase at 3% a year. My Austin Energy and Development Services, 1% per year. But your expenses so are going to increase by... 3.8. 3.8. So your stipulation is 3.8% increase in expense. On one half of the ledger, 2.5% cap, although we'll come back to the mechanism that would allow right. you to go above that. On the other half of the ledger, 3% and 1% respectively. 2%. Doesn't get you to... 3.8%. 3.8%. And that's how you say with a straight face, the consequence of this cap, net, 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 is I'm going to have to reduce my budget, which is going to affect... We're going to cut muscle, not bone. Or bone, not muscle, maybe. Have to. You know, if, if, if my cost drivers are going up 3.8%, which is they are, that, that's, that's health insurance premiums. That's wage increases that are built into my existing budget. Uh, those are my contracts with my public safety folks built into my budget. It's the, it's the lease payments I make on buildings where, where rents are going up. If I don't add any new programs, any new people, any new anything other than what's already programmed into my existing budget, yep. my budget is projected to go up by 38 3.8% over the next several years. And, and if I'm capped at 2.5%, that's the budget that's $52 million, $51.7 million right. upside down in three years. You know that the state of Texas has the sixth uh, highest property tax burden of any state in the country, has the 12th highest sales tax burden of any state in the country. Don't we have a problem we need to solve? I think, I think, I think we do. You know, I, and I, and, and I'm you not, yourself said state of the union 2018, it's high time. The state legislature finally does something about increases in property taxes. You're on record saying you want them to be in this space. They're in this space. They are in this space. I don't want them to be in this space. They're, they're here. You don't want them to no, fix no, the no. problem? No, no, no. It's not that I just want them to be in this space. They are in the space, as you say. And as I said, the, the, the state property tax in Austin, and by state property tax, don't have I state mean property tax. people say that. Well, no, we that. do not, Mr. Mayor, we right. don't have a state property tax, period, paragraph, okay. fact check, true. We the, do not have a state property the tax. Local, the local property tax that the state controls and rakes off the table because it's, they consider it to be their money, not our money whatever you want to call that tax, has gone up uh, in the last six years on the typical home from like $350 to, to, to over $1,300. That's their tax. And the tax. part that they rake off, you're talking about the money that they take from all of us to pay for education. The money that they take off us to pay for recapture. Right. But understand that this is not something that's just for rich school districts because poor school districts have the same thing. As poor school, as property rate values are increasing and poor school districts can't lower their rate either in the face of property values going up, they gin a lot more money. Now, they don't get to keep that lot more money. They have to spend it because the contribution they get from the state goes down corresponding to how much more they raise locally. So in a rich school district, a school district raises more money than they than more money because they're keeping their rate the same and property values increasing. That increases the rake off the table the state takes. In a poor school district, rather than giving the school district the $50 million they were going to give them, now they see, well, you're raising tons more money because you're keeping your rate high and values are going up. Now we're only going to give you 30. It is the combination of those two things that has resulted in the state contributing less money to public education. That's why this House Bill 3 and, and, and the work that's being done is a good thing because it's putting more money into the school finance system. It's increasing the state share from the mid-30s to the low 40s in terms of the percent that the state picks up the tab on public education. That's correct. And I misspoke. The amount of money that the state uh, is taking is go goes up from, from $355 in fiscal year 2014 to $1,710 in 2019. Per household. 
That's the typical median value homestead tax bill. Right. I mean, the total tax bill hasn't gone, has only gone up $1,900. And you can see here that, that, that $1,400 of that total $1,900 increase in property taxes is the result of the what do you want to call it? The state-mandated well, state. city local tax? Well, so you're, you're, I mean, I, I've been t tempted to ask you at various points here, how exactly is this the state's fault? And I think I'm understanding your argument, whether I like it or don't like it, agree with it or don't agree with it. And that is that the state designed a property tax component of an education finance system. They designed the system that results in this imbalance. It is. And therefore the state owns it because in the absence of a redesign of that system, which they're attempting right now, right. in the absence of a redesign of that system, there is no way but for property taxes to be higher. Correct. As property values go up, cities and counties lower their rate. They still generate enough money. But if a school district would do the same thing, right. they get penalized by the state. The problem here. Mr. Mayor, the conservatives who hear you talk about how you oppose this legislation push back in a number of different ways. And one way that I think is worth discussing is you control how much this city spends. You have a pretty big budget. I understand that some high percentage, what you said, 70 percent is public safety. You've got some discretionary money. You can go in and scrub that budget. If you're concerned about not having enough money for public safety in the face of a 2.5% threshold – even before you decide to go back to the voters and make what I'm sure, because it's you, would be a compelling case, right? Mayor Adler is always compelling when it comes to this stuff. Couldn't you just cut somewhere else in the budget? Why do you assume that you can't cut to find the money? You know, isn't, isn't that that's the answer that you hear every every political race from everybody and every party that's not in power at any point in time? The fact is we scrub our budget every year. You think your budget is lean? Our budget is very lean. And it's lean by purpose. No and room for you to cut something. Else. There will always be room to cut, but it comes at an expense. Well, government's about choices, Mr. Mayor. It is always. about choices. Budgets are not referendums, they're choices. That is absolutely true. Right? That is absolutely true. But and you're here to say that you don't believe there's enough for you to cut that would make back up anything that you would not have available to you if SB2, HB2 passed. That's correct. If, if, if it passes at 2.5%, I'm $51.7 million upside down. And you can't find that money? Of course not. And, well, and, I don't assume, of course not. You assume, of course I'm not. A, I'm saying, of course not, without giving things up that are that 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 drive the quality of life that we have in the city. You know, we live in a city where the where the unemployment rate is 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 lower than anywhere else. Crazy in the state. low, right? Crazy, yeah. crazy low. Lower than anywhere else in the state. And the state's lower than than the rest of the country. Right. You know, the average. We live in a state where you know we're the eleventh largest state in the country, but only the fourth largest state city in the state. Seven percent of the population, but we're half the 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 venture capital and a third of the patents. We're the city that just helped bring in uh, the billion dollar addition for Apple. We where 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 we helped land the the Army Futures Command. I mean, there's something really wonderful that's happening in the city. We were just listed for the third year in a row as the the best city to live in by U.S. News and 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 World so Report. So you you believe we're doing that, yeah, something you, we, right? We here. have a good thing going, and legislation imperils our ability to keep the good thing going going. That's correct. You why think? why would you take the city that is arguably doing better than any other city in the country and, and, and impose this kind of thing. Is there a percentage, if it's not 2.5%, that you would be comfortable with that would get you to yes? You understand, again, the history of this is that the 8% threshold is many, many years ago and was set at a time when the inflation rate in this country was double digits. It was much higher. 
And it was never understood that that threshold would remain at 8% when inflation went down, but inflation went down, and yet the threshold remained at 8%. So it's overdue for it to come down. So tell me what number you would be comfortable with, if not 2.5%. Well, you know, I, I would point out anecdotally that in the last budget we just did, we were at 5.45%. So they having the 8% but provides that's just them... You. That's not everybody. Other that, places had different percentages. And different cities are different different numbers at different times, depending on whether they had a small city that had a huge waterline rupture uh, or they needed to bring in a lot more. They opened up a new fire station and now they have to double the staffing of their fire department. I mean, every city has different things that hit them at different times. Half of our revenues, you know, doesn't come from property tax. Depending on how we do with sales tax in any given year, we have the flexibility to raise or lower our of course, property they increase tax. the sales tax, if they get that thing passed, and it's complicated for them to get it passed politically. I'm not talking about rate. I'm just yeah, but if the sales tax generates. went up, that might help a little bit, right? Well, if, 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 if the sales tax generates Past more money. Past the 2.5%, but then, which I guess the con- precondition of the sales tax plan that the governor, lieutenant governor, speaker put forward today is that if you pass SB2 and HB2, we go to the voters with this proposal to increase the sales tax, which would then buy down property taxes. It would, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about living in a city where, where because of your marketing campaign or because of the creativity or the things that your people produce or whatever, you end up selling more things in your district. You bring in more tourists. Uh, they, they buy more things. It's your sales tax revenue that's going up. That's important, not the sales tax rate. Right. Yeah. So, so from time to time, different cities need the ability to be able to charge more in property tax because there are so many variables. You push back on the idea that this should be standardized. Not only don't you like the 2.5%, you don't like the state dictating that every city has to live in the same universe. Because, because the state can't dictate that. If they dictate a 5% cap for all of the cities, they are dictating widely divergent revenue for each of those cities. What is the justification but to they, say But to it's people, dictated 8% now. It's already the way it is now. Right. But, that, but because of the things you've pointed out, that's provided some flexibility for cities like Austin, not to charge at 8% in years we don't need to, but to be at 5.45%, which we, our current budget is. But having that flexibility means if something goes wrong, then you I can deal with it. Six. And one of the advantages of that is that we have a double A rating in our city, and we've now gotten letters from the credit agencies that say that if this cap goes into place, it's going to be something that is considered as part of our, 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 our credit rating. You think the city's credit rating is put at risk by this legislation? I absolutely believe that to be true. Right. Uh, but, you know, again, Mr. Mayor, there is already a ceiling on how far you can go. Correct. And that ceiling is 8%. So it's not, we can't be opposed to ceilings necessarily. Correct. We're already living under a ceiling. Correct. It's a question of which ceiling. Correct. And so, again, I come back to you with the question I asked you earlier. What is the right it's a, reset of the ceiling? It would have to be a rate that would allow me not to have to go to my voters every year to but ask what for what is the rate? Well, I'm telling you. Yeah. you know, so if I'm at 3.8% on my cost drivers, let's say 4%, in order for me to be able to just pay my cost drivers, I need a 4% revenue increase. If the rest of my revenue is going up 2%, of course, next year it could be 1% or it could be 3%. But this year, if you're asking me, it's forecast to go up 2%, which means I need a 6% revenue cap on property tax if I'm going to have a 4% revenue increase. And if I had that, then this year I could pay for my cost drivers. 
It also means I couldn't expand programs. We just did an incredible program, pilot program on homelessness. We were able in the last 12 months to house half of the children in our city that were living on our streets that were homeless. In the last two and a half years, we've housed 635 veterans with a pilot program. We're now ready to expand that program. But if I'm capped at a place where I can't do anything other than cover my cost drivers, I'm not going to be able to do a program like that without cutting some other program. Uh, that, 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 that's working in our city. So you're asking me this year, what is that number? At 6%, I can cover my cost drivers and I don't have to make any cuts. I don't get to do anything new. And then ask me, what about next year? And I can't tell you next year because I don't know what my sales tax revenue is going to be so next year. The, so 8% has given you enough flexibility that you were not worried year over year if your needs changed that you couldn't make the math work. But at a lower percent, something lower than 6 say, you are worried that you couldn't make the math work. That is correct. Mike Rawlings in Dallas, Sylvester Turner in Houston, Ron Nuremberg in San Antonio, other mayors feel 6% is a good number, or does everybody have a different number? You know, I think probably everybody has a different number, but I think generally speaking, the cost drivers associated with cities would translate that way, but different cities make different amounts in their property, in their right. sales taxes, so they're a little bit different. And and, and the mayor in, in Houston's capped at 4.5%, and, and, and he's the living example of the problems associated with 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 um, uh, having a, a low cap. Explain. His, 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 his credit rating is lower than other cities, and he's been told by his credit agencies that that's a significant reason why they're dealing with because what they're Because he's limited dealing. in his ability to generate revenue. Correct. Right. Mr. Mayor, and he's, he's, I, yeah. he's having trouble with police contracts. He's having, he's having trouble with his budgets. But are his police and fire contract problems because he doesn't have enough money through the property tax to pay them? That seems like a much bigger problem than just that. It's a, but it's a contributor to his problem. Mr. Mayor, uh, I ask everybody who is opposed to this legislation the same question I'm going to ask you. Why do you hate democracy? What the legislation imagines is that you will simply make the same case that you believe to be compelling today to me, to the voters, at election time. If you need more money than the 2.5% allows, if your cost drivers are what they are, like a fourth grader in math class, show your work to the voters. And the voters will say, oh, He's proven to us that this money is necessary. And if you can't make the sale, then maybe the money isn't necessary. Why not just go to the voters? Well, at the, at the, at the risk of saying that, that it's, it, it's better to have the ability to have a voter election than not have a voter election and run the risk that the, the, the legislative leaders will take that out of the bill tomorrow before it gets passed, I will concede that that, that is a good thing to, to have in there as opposed to no ability uh, to, to be able to go above it's that representative rate. democracy, right? But there are also problems and challenges with it, which is why what I are they? don't like what that. Are they? To begin with, it's going to impact our credit rating. I'm not going to be able to um, get the, 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 a, or what our credit rate agencies have told us is that if cities lose the flexibility to be able to deal with things that happen, we are a greater credit risk. Now, right and now, those regardless cons- of whether the voters are brought into the conversation and approve your plan to go higher than 2.5%, the credit ratings will still be impacted? Yes, because there's there's always going to be doubt uh, or uncertainty associated with having an election. So a city that has the ability in the face of an exigent circumstance to know that just by city council vote, it's going to be able to deal with a severe flooding event or whatever it is, that it's going to be able to pay for increases in, in health insurance expenses uh, just with a council vote is less of a credit risk than a city that has to go to the voters for an election Is on a that. council vote any more of a guarantee than a popular vote? Yes, credit agencies believe that to be the case. They do. 
And, and, but there are more reasons than that. Go ahead. I'll give you another reason. Right now, we enter into long-term contracts that result in considerable savings to uh, our community. Uh, we enter long-term uh, public safety contracts. Our financial policies will not let us enter into a contract that, 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 that has an increase above what the capped rate's going to be uh, if, there's an, if, if it can only be maintained with an intervening election. Because in good faith, you don't know that you can promise an increase above the 2.5% if you don't know whether the voters are going to approve it. That's correct. Right. I'll give you a third reason. There's, there's voter fatigue. I, you know, there's not a city as a practical matter with all its jurisdictions that are going to want to have a, a, a community vote every year on things like, you know, do we, do we, do we pay for the increases in health insurance expenses? It just, it, it's going to lead to voter fatigue. When we're, talking we go about regular, voters, we're talking about a regularly scheduled election, to be clear. We're not right. talking about a specially called election. We're talking about a regularly scheduled November election. A regularly scheduled November election. We're already going to have a ballot in November anyway. All you're doing is adding one more item on the ballot. Right. But What's when, so onerous about but that? But when the cities go, in addition to those two reasons I gave you before, when cities go to its voters, we go for big things. We go for transportation initiatives. School we bonds. We go for school bonds. We go for big things. And, and, and a lot of people spend a lot of money on both sides doing education programs to make sure people understand. We don't, we don't do that willy-nilly. We do that when there is something really big and, and important and worthy of the time and the effort and the resources that are going to be devoted to an election. And, and, I, and I can't even imagine what a world is like when every election... We're having an Mr. election. Mr. Mayor, the people who oppose your point of view on this would say, and maybe they'd say it cynically, but they'd say it anyway, either you don't trust yourself to be a good enough salesman or you don't trust the voters to be smart enough to know when this is needed and when it isn't. I hear that, but you know, the same voters that elected them elected me. And, and I was elected to do a job. And, and I was elected, You're elected to be- elected not a one-year term, but a four-year term. That's correct. So let's say in the first few months of a four-year term, you approve an increase in property taxes greater than the 2.5%, greater than what the voters want. Right. You're making the voters wait three years to exact their revenge on you. Well, they can exact their revenge on half my council. Uh, uh, I can't in, touch in, you. In the, in the next, in the, virtually in is the it, next is election. Is a four-year term enough accountability if you do something off the leash in the first six months? I, you know, we've been elected to these offices, and I think that it is. Uh, you know, this is not, we're, we live in a, a representative democracy, a republic, as opposed to, a, you know, we don't put everything up for a vote, nor should we put everything up for the vote, and the community doesn't want to vote You think they're trusting you enough to make decisions on behalf of all of us? Certainly. When, when they put you in office? Certainly, with the exception of things that, like, go for bond elections. If we're going to, 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 to approve a, a $920 million bond proposal like we just did, voters are going to want me to take that to them, and I understand that, and that's important to have happen, right, and that's but a 2.5% versus a 3% increase in property tax revenues year over year, you think not? No. You don't think they're expecting it? Are we solving, Mr. Mayor, the wrong problem? Is the problem not the appraisal system is screwed up not the stuff that we're talking about being screwed up. I mean, ultimately, the driver of our property taxes is property values. Property values are driven by the appraisal system. We have an appraisal system that is a, a patchwork quilt of unequal approaches to setting appraisal rates. There's a question about whether we have truth in appraisal transparency. Do we actually do an adequate job of, you know, providing people information about what property values actually are? Are people paying taxes on the real as opposed to unreal value of their property? The system of appraisals is screwed up. No one seems to disagree with that. Maybe not even the people on the appraisal boards. 
right? So why don't we just fix that problem? And I and I, and I think that we should. And and in fact, in the city of Austin, we we noticed that what it appeared independent studies were telling us that that homeowners were being valued at a hundred percent of their market value, but commercial properties were not. Uh, so Austin actually got involved in an action to try and and fix that. As this it is turns the argument out, we hear in. At election time, when people try to find more money to pay for public education, say they say, well, hold on a second. We have money available to us. If we simply tax commercial industrial property at the appraisal rate that they should be as opposed to what they're getting taxed at now, there's some number of billions of dollars available to us to put back into public education. And that's what people say. It doesn't actually work Do you work believe that? Way? No, because, because, because so all that does is— the next time a member is... of your party, a Democrat, comes out at a time when they run for statewide office and says, we got we to go reset the appraisal rates, you will say— that's BS. I call BS. On yes, but the reason, and the reason for that is, the way that a rate gets set is 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 hyper technical answer here. You figure out how much it is that you want to raise in revenue, and you divide that by the 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 total amount of property value that you have. That sets you a rate. So the the amount of money you have in your budget divided by the total property value. So if you're saying if I properly valued my commercial property and my total property value went up by fifty million dollars, all that would do would be to lower my rate because the denominator in that equation would have gone up by fifty. So million. So there is not more money, Mr. Mayor, to get out of commercial and industrial property tax payers if they were valued at their accurate rate. That is correct. There is not but more money. There would be a fairer system. So that homeowners would only be paying their proportionate share, their responsible. You're not share. advocating for increasing th property taxes on commercial and industrial uh, taxpayers. I'm just for arguing for a fair system. Now, what happened when Austin did that? Our suit was dismissed, but our but our chief appraiser, I think, really took everything to to heart and has done an incredible job of changing policies and practices. Right. And I think that the appraisal system in Travis County right now is fair. You think it's fair every place else? No. So you think appraisal reform has got to be a, con a component of any fix to this system? Yes, I think that properties all over the state should be valued at their fair market value. Do you see appraisal reform as part of the legislation under consideration at the legislature now? No. To an adequate degree? No. No. <laughs> and virtually not at all. Uh, you know, the, the, the concept of actually valuing all the property in the state at its fair market value is something that some of our state leadership re resists. Um, I mean, but we, there's always this sort of side question. I'm going to kind of uh, go down a tributary of the main body of water here for a second. I'm going to come back to the main body about affordability. Property values have gone up. Austin is such a hard place to live now. I mean, I joke that you've had one... Uh, a positive consequence for your fellow Democrats in that, you know, you've pushed a bunch of former Austin residents into the collar counties that have now become more palatable uh, politically for you because if Austin is less affordable, people who can no longer afford to live in Austin but have Austin values and cast votes like Austinites are now in places like Cedar Park and Leander Williamson County and now suddenly Democrats are getting elected there. Secret plan. Which, is that your secret? It is kind of your master <laughs> secret uh, evil plan. Um, I mean, the fact is that the, the rising uh, property values and appraisal uh, uh, rates in Austin have produced a number of deleterious consequences for this community. Not only have property taxes gone up, but also it's been difficult for a lot of people to find a place to live in this city. I mean, that, that's like more of an existential problem, is it not? Huge. Much larger than the question of SB2 or HB2. 
two big challenges in the city are mobility and affordability, and they're intertwined, and you're not going to solve one without the other. And there are, you know, we, we, we need to bring de- everything we can do to either stop the increase of property values or slow it. We need to increase housing supply. We need right. to increase, uh, decrease the cost of getting product onto the market. We need to uh, change how we do land planning so that we can have denser, more compact developments so that people don't have to travel as far from their home to get to where it is that you want to get to. Uh, we need to do things like the Austin Housing Conservancy, first of its kind in the world, which is an open-end fund to, to help buy some of the properties that are at 80 to 120% of mean family income that could all be reworked the right now. The things you're describing, them, Mayor, are a long-term set of fixes, are they not? They're not immediate term. You can't fix these problems overnight. Oh, that, that does not change overnight, correct. How long does it take for us to see any of these things you've just described uh, have a material impact? I think if we were able to change the land development code and increase the supply, I think you'd have houses that were starting to be built right away. I think you'd start being changes, you know, pretty, pretty immediately. Let's come back to the question of recapture, which you talked about earlier. Austin's recapture payment is nuts. Right. It is super high. I mean, Correct. Houston had this massive fight with the TEA right. a couple of years ago, and voters were kind of on, you know, outraged about how much they had to pay, and they were able to buy down the amount they paid TEA through some kind of a, an agreement. Austin's recapture payment is like, three or four times the amount of Houston's, right? I mean, it's it's the largest recapture payment in, in the state, is it not? And it's fixing to be right. even higher, although HB3, through its various mechanisms, is going to lower the Austin recapture payment by some significant amount. Right. right. Do you fundamentally oppose the concept of recapture? The idea that a progressive city like Austin, which has more than many, of other, many other places and has more to give believes in equity and believes in everybody having access to adequate resources, you know, the table of opportunity being set for all and all that. Do you believe that Austin should not be contributing to the overall state of education in the in Texas by making its, um, its fair share available to other people? I believe in equity in the school system, and I believe in recapture. I believe that districts that, that, that have more should be helping to fund districts that have less, and I believe that a student in the Valley uh, should be uh, getting the same wonderful education as a student anywhere else in and the And should state. Austin taxpayers be responsible on, on the hook financially for that? But understand that, 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 that the, the increase here locally over the last six years, the number I talked about going from like three hundred and fifty dollars up to seven seventy is not just in rich districts. That same thing happens in poor districts. But I'm talking too. about Austin. But Austin is not a poor district, right? Correct. Although but you in, have significant poverty. I mean, one of the ironies of this whole conversation about capture is that there is significant poverty in the city of Austin. Correct. And yet Austin's property values are so high that Austin is paying all this money out that could conceivably, in the absence of recapture, go to serve those underserved communities, neighborhoods, no question. schools. But you've identified two different issues here. So so how when when the state collects all its money, it's supposed to send it back out in a way that's fair for every student, and it's supposed to take into account that some students are more expensive to educate than others. The problem that we have is that the weights and measures that they've been using, when I was chief of staff and general counsel... Uh, Elliot Shapley's office Shapley, in the Senate, right. In, in the late 90s... We they haven't were, changed. You know, they were old then and unfair, and we were trying to change them. And they're, they're the same as they are now. Immovable. So in Austin, that has a higher than average number of students that are speaking English as a second language at home, and a higher than state average number of students who are getting uh, uh, free and reduced meals... You know, an indication of, of, of low income. Uh, the 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 formulas that are used do not accurately uh, compensate the city of Austin for that, or the other cities that are are dealing with those kinds of students. But 
that's one issue that needs to be taken care of, better, better measures. But the other issue is it's not a Robin Hood issue that is draining us of funds. It's the fact that the state is putting less and less money into education. You know, the, the typical homeowner in Austin pays $1,276. Um, I mean, that's been the, 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 um, the, the property tax bill uh, for, a, for a medium price home in the city, but it's higher in Del Valley and Eanes and Elgin and Hayes and, and Leander and Maynard. It's higher in all these other districts. So it's not a question of Robin Hood or not Robin Hood. It's, it's the tax burden that the state is making the local right. people. Now, the assume. pushback, Mayor, to, the, to your pushback is the state doesn't determine how much it spends on public education and then property taxes pay the rest. It's actually the reverse. You know, property taxes are what the property taxes are in a local community, and then the state picks up the balance of it. Now, you could argue that the pushback to the pushback to the pushback is that the state designed a system that let them off the hook. Repeatedly lets them off the hook every year. It designs a system that relies on property taxes to be the first in, and when property values rise, that first in is higher, which gives the state a lower amount that they have to put in. It takes advantage of that. It programs that in. It, it manages its budget dependent on increasing the property tax load that people have to pay at the local level. And, and even though it's basing its budget on increased property tax load being borne by people at the local level, then they turn around and blame the cities and counties for that. Right. And so you, you would argue that even if the result of HB2 and SB2, should they pass in the current form, is that property tax collections are lower than they otherwise would be. And as a result of that, the state is obligated by the screwy system it designed to put more money into public education. You would argue that is still not an adequate reason to support this legislation. No, because I, I separate House Bill 3 from House Bill 2, right? right? And, and House Bill 3 is a good step. I wish it went farther and I wish it did more and I wish it more fundamentally right. changed the systems. But that said, I'm happy that it's passing. I put more money in education. Yeah. But, but if House Bill 2 passes, I mean, we're going to be confronted with things like, for example, and given the, the listenership that, 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 that you have on, on Texas Tribune. Like six insomniacs. Right. Ahead, but, but, but we pay at this point $12 million a year for uh, economic incentive uh, payments that were adopted by councils well before my council. These are payments to companies like Endeavor or to to Samsung or to to other big businesses. Now, on my council, uh, when the time comes every year for us to do the budget, there's always a council member or two that says, hey, let's stop making those payments. And I've always pushed back against them. And I said, you know, you can't do that. A deal is a deal. People, when they, when they come to the city, if you struck a deal and our predecessors did, you have to abide by that because there's a certain good faith that, that, that is implied. Your, your city's reputation is on the line. But if I'm looking at a budget here in just a little bit where I'm asked, do I want to give $4 million to some of the wealthiest corporations to abide by that kind of an agreement, or do I want to give those $4 million to, to homeless folks in our community to help fix the arch? I don't know, I don't know what this council does. And, 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 and it's that kind of decision we're going to have to be confronted you're, you're, with. You're, it's going to be forcing your hand. Absolutely. So even if the state picks up a higher share of funding of public education, which you say is something you want, sure. this is still a bad deal because of the other consequences intended or unintended that it has that's correct and i just don't think that 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 that, that i just don't believe that, that that folks up in the capital truly appreciate what the financial implication is for as cities. you know mr mayor one of the discussions as this legislation makes its way to the floor of the house it's already passed committee in both the house and senate has not yet gotten to the floor of the senate but there are discussions about how this all fits through the pipe and gets us to the end of the session is carve outs right 
Who should we exempt? We published a story on the Texas Tribune site a couple months ago that said that community colleges, for instance, are concerned that if they are part of this 2.5% threshold, that they will be forced to raise tuitions. And there's been discussion of community colleges being exempt from this. There's discussions of public safety being exempt. In at least the House, there's discussions of school districts being exempt from this cap. Are there a series of carve-outs that you would be comfortable with that would allow you to support 2.5% as the threshold? And don't say every single entity has to be carved out, right? You, you have to pick. So what carve-outs would you be for and would be sufficient for you to support the 2.5%? You know, I, uh, if I would be able to support personally a 2.5% cap if there was a carve-out that included public safety. I mean, as, as more than anything else. I'm trying to get I'm, you to yes, you understand. So I understand that. Public and safety is one. Public safety, and I think that would be an important carve-out. And then within that same carve-out, you know, we could put in things that were, that were shared even without increasing the carve-out. So if my public safety budget is 70% of my budget right now, if I were to have a two and a half cap on everything else in my budget and a 5% cap on public safety, and if there was an automatic election, if I exceeded either one of those two things, in that 5% that was public safety, even within that cap without changing that cap, if the state wanted to put in something like economic development payments or roads or things that were also shared state priorities, you're okay with that. I would be, I'd be okay with that too. Yeah. But something that had the two and a half percent, but then had a carve out up to five percent, and if you exceed either one of those caps, automatic election, right. I think would be something that that most cities could work with. Another thing that's been discussed is what I keep describing as rollover minutes, where there'd be a certain period of time at which if you're under the 2.5%, you can take the difference, the delta, and possibly apply it in a future year so that you could go a little bit above. Right. So effectively, the 2.5% becomes a rolling average. Right. What do you think about that? You know, at... at, at, at you're already at a, well above 2.5%, so maybe it wouldn't work for you. Right. In fact, it might work for somebody else. Not very many. You know, if you're setting the, the, the rolling average at a, at a rate that's less than what your cost drivers are, then rolling average doesn't help you. Every year you're going to get as much as you can in order to be able to pay as much of your cost drivers as you're able to, to do. But I do like the idea of a rolling average. Because it I gives, them, like it gives flexibility out. to some communities. Because it gives flexibility. Likewise, there's been discussion of a geographic carve-out below a certain population uh, uh, amount or below a certain... Uh, total revenue generated by property taxes amount, those people would be exempt. Right. From this. What do you think about that? Well, I have two Again, thoughts. Again, it doesn't on affect it. you. I have two thoughts on that. The first is, is that I, I, I think that any city that can escape an artificially low revenue cap that prevents it from being able to pay normal cost drivers is a good thing. So, so I would let all of my, my brothers, brothers and, and sisters, sisters cities right. yeah. out of the pot if I could. Power to the people. But I will tell you that if I was a resident in one of those cities and I wanted to know why Austin got capped at 5% or 6% or whatever number and the legislator, legislature didn't carve out my city no matter how small it was, I think I'd be, I think I'd be, be pissed. pissed. Right. Uh, last couple of minutes we have. Let's talk about what this is really about. This is basically the latest volley on the local control versus local liberty front, is it not? I think it is. I mean, this is really a, a, a pebble in a path, in a long path that is right behind us, us both. Bag bans, uh, tree setbacks, ride hailing, a topic that you, not to pour salt in a wound that probably hasn't healed yet, but ride hailing. All of this is under the guise of 
we at the state level maybe once upon a time believed, as Jefferson did, that the best government is closest to those being governed, but we no longer believe that. We don't trust you guys. What did Dan Patrick refer to you all as in the last session? Democrat cities, Democrat mayors. Right. This is really about uh, the clampdown on all of you. In fact, at one point, I think the lieutenant governor said something on Fox like the only thing wrong with America today uh, is, is, has been caused by Democratic mayors and Democratic city councils. And we have nonpartisan mayors in the state of Texas. But the four bigs, Austin, Dallas, Antonio, Houston, I mean, everybody knows you're out Democrats, every one of you, right? There's no question about what Mike Rawlings is or what Sylvester is. Sylvester ran for office as a Democrat for many years in the legislature. I think I Ron in, Ron in San Antonio and Independent. Oh, you think Ron Nuremberg is independent? Did you suddenly lose your powers of perception, <laughs> sight, hearing, smell, taste? What are you talking about? That's what I see when I no, look my, at his My page. point is, though, I know you don't see, you know, I, right. everyone's the same. I get that. But the point is, seriously, isn't this about that? You know, and, and, and I would say absolutely yes. Uh, it's good that it's not only being directed at Austin anymore. It's now being directed at cities generally across the state. And it's and the fact good is, because— I don't think D. Margo, who's a Republican, uh, former elected, now running— the city of El Paso, nonpartisan mayoralty, but he's running it. I don't think he likes this any more than you do, right? He does not. In fact, in fact, uh, you know, the, the the mayors this time around, uh, last session, the, the the mayor's position on this same kind of cap was, no, we didn't engage in any kind of conversations about it. The answer was no, because the result was just too horrific that to really think it would actually happen. But this time, the mayors came back in in a very different place. And for the last over two months, every week, I've been on the phone. With, with the largest 25 cities uh, in, the, in the state and more mayors on the phone every Friday trying to be constructive in this process. Some Respond of those to are the questions. Republicans. And, and many of them are Republicans. And when we walked into offices, quite frankly, the, 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 the first mayors in the room leading us in were Ginger Nelson and Amarillo and Dan Pope and Lubbock. Um, these are Republican mayors as well. When I published uh, the, the, the op-ed piece that we did, the commentary piece in the Statesman last week, uh, I was joined by four co -authors. others, co-authors, and I had a Republican mayor in Georgetown, a Republican mayor in, uh, in Round Rock, and, and mayors across the state were doing the same thing. This is no longer just Democrat and Republican, although I think that there are some people that are trying to force it that way. This really is about cities, and, and that's why I just can't understand that. There's something remarkable that's happening in this state, and cities are the, are the economic engines and the incubators of, of, of innovation. One of the great things about this state is that four of the top 10 cities, largest top cities in the country are in Texas. And every one of them is different. And every one of them responds to different market cycles at different times. We're each going to attract different businesses and different kinds of employees. We each have different cultures. We each produce different things. And to the degree that, that, we're, that for some perverse reason we're trying to make every city in this state look like every other city in the state is not a good thing for the state's economy. It's not good for any of our states. States are doing something right right now in the state of Texas. Austin's doing something right. Houston is. Dallas, San Antonio, El Paso, Fort Worth. We're all doing something right yep. right now. That is to the benefit of the state of Texas. I'm proud to be contributing to the, to the, to the welfare and economic well-being of the state of Texas. Uh, and, and, and how this has warped and morphed into, into something where there's what feels like a war against cities uh, is, is something I simply do not understand. Okay, Mr. Mayor, uh, we know where you stand. Uh, we appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thanks. You've been listening to Point of Order. 
a proud member of the Texas Tribune's family of podcasts. Thanks to our guest, Austin Mayor Steve Adler, and thanks to the sponsors of this episode, Texas Realtors, the University of Texas at Arlington, and the Texas Education Grantmakers Advocacy Consortium. Be sure to check out the Tribune's deep coverage of the 86th legislative session at texastribune.org. And if you like what you see there or hear here, we want to hear from you. We want you featured on an upcoming episode of this podcast. Grab your phone, open your voice memo app, and record yourself telling the world why you support the Texas Tribune. Keep your recording to less than a minute if you can, and then email your voice note to membership at texastribune.org. That's membership at texastribune.org. That's all for this week. Until next time, I'm Evan Smith.